Bibles out this morning and go to Matthew, Matthew chapter number 5. Matthew chapter 5. We began last week studying the Beatitudes together from Matthew chapter 5, and we will continue doing so um, here today. I was telling Brother Reese uh, earlier uh, this week um, that I only got to preach half of the sermon, and so surely if I only have to preach a second half of the sermon, it won't be too long. But I don't make any promises to you, okay? Uh, but Matthew chapter 5, if you found your place there, say amen. amen. Well, wonderful. I'm excited to study this passage of Scripture. And here in chap Matthew's chap Matthew chapters 5 through 7, we have what is often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount preached by Jesus Christ. The preacher of this sermon is Jesus, the greatest preacher to ever preach. And he preached the greatest sermon that has ever been preached. The place where this uh, was preached at was the place called the Mount of the Beatitudes. We call it that. It was a no-name place before Jesus preached there. But now we know that hill holds significance because of who preached there. And uh, the, uh, the people who heard this message preached were fans and followers, true disciples of Jesus, and the multitudes, crowds of people, all people were welcome to come and hear the truth that Jesus preached in this message. And uh, the position from which this message was preached, we saw last week, was from a seated position. In that culture, it was a position of authority. And Jesus spoke with authority and power. And he wasn't debating. He wasn't reasoning. He was declaring, thus saith the Lord. He was declaring, these things are true. That's the sermon that he preached. And then we saw last week, the proclamation of this message was the constitution of the kingdom of God. In this message, Jesus outlined what it looks like to live as a citizen in his kingdom. What it looks like to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. The words that Jesus preached in this message were revolutionary. They went against the grain of everything that the world thought uh, how the world was supposed to function. Uh, it was different. It was something uh, uh, the world had never heard before. Jesus, instead of telling people uh, to be more religious and to make the outside appear uh, godly, he, he targeted the heart. And he, he, he was preaching in this message telling people, don't worry about the outside. What appears to everybody else, worry about what's going on in your heart. Because if your heart is right, everything else will fix itself. It's a revolutionary message. It was also a, parad a paradoxical message. In other words, the truth that Jesus preached in this passage of Scripture is seemingly contradictory. It goes against the grain of the things that the world tells us are true. And uh, uh, the word, in the world's eyes, the, the things that Jesus teaches and the characteristics that Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount are the characteristics of losers. That's what the world says. But Jesus says these are the characteristics of people who are truly blessed and truly fulfilled and truly satisfied. And that's why uh, this, this, in this first part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus starts by telling us how we can live blessed lives. And I want to read a little bit of these Beatitudes. In fact, let's read all of them together out loud if we could. Starting in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse number 3. Let's read together. The Bible says, and begin, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. These beatitudes, as we often call them, are a list of instructions Jesus gives to us about how to live a truly blessed life. Now the world has a list, and it varies, but the world has a list of things that they say, if you have these things, or you are these things, then you'll be happy. But the problem with the happiness that the world has to offer to us is that it's temporal. It can only satisfy you, but for a moment. There's pleasure in sin for a season, Hebrews 11 says, but the season always ends. The type of blessed life Jesus describes here is eternal. It's, it's a type of fulfillment that you can find that will satisfy you for all of your days. And so Jesus outlines for us eight ways you can live a truly blessed or happy life. And I want you to understand these blessings are not mere probabilities. These are proclamations. Jesus is saying, if you are this way, then you will reap this, reap this benefit as a result of it. And uh, these aren't uh, uh, possibilities, but they are proclamations. And the other thing I'd say about this is that as we began to see last week, these Beatitudes are progressive. In other words, they build one upon another. And so we're going to look at the first four very quickly because we already studied these last week and then dive into the rest of them in the time that we have together this morning. The first characteristic of a truly blessed person that we began to see last week is that he is poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, the Bible says. And we learned last week that a truly blessed or a truly happy person is a truly humble person. A person who understands their desperate condition before a holy God and they understand their desperate need for God in their life. That's the poor in spirit. The second uh, attribute, characteristic we noticed of a truly blessed person is that he is penitent. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And if you study the etymology, this, the word study of the word mourn, what we discovered last week is that it's speaking of one who is broken over his personal sin. What we learned last week is that the person who uh, mourns is happy. The person who mourns over his sin is happy because he knows he is forgiven. And it's, this is true of every person who has ever been saved. They come with tears of sorrow for their sin. They leave with tears of joy because they know they are forgiven. Thank God for that. The penitent. The, second, the third uh, uh, attribute of a blessed person we looked at last week was the pleasant. Uh, blessed, the Bible says in verse number uh, five, are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And we learned last week the meek man is not a weak man, but rather he is a man who, because he has understood how spiritually destitute he is and how desperate he needs God for victory over sin, he realizes that he has to surrender everything over to God's control. He's not strong enough in and of himself. And in the process of that, he becomes a meek person. 
His, whatever strength he thinks he has is under the control of an almighty God, and that will make a man meek. The fourth attribute we looked at last week was uh, of the truly blessed person or happy person is that he is parched. He hungers and thirsts after righteousness. And the, and the promise for that person is that he shall be filled. This is the type of person that has an insatiable desire to be closer to God. And boy, we, we, we looked at this last week and we looked at this list of what it looks like to live a truly blessed life. But there's a transition that takes place at this point in Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and specifically here in the Beatitudes. And uh, if you're taking notes, you might note this down. The first four Beatitudes dealt with inward realities. The last four deal with outward manifestations. The first four deal with inward realities. The last four deal with outward manifestations. In other words, we'll see the parallels here. In verse number three, it parallels over with verse number seven. The poor in spirit see their need for mercy, and so it becomes natural for them to show mercy to others. Verse number four parallels to verse number eight. Those who mourn over their sin and turn it over to God become pure in heart. Made pure, not by their own works, but by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, mind you. Those who are meek seek to use their power to make peace with others. And so verse 5 parallels to verse number 9. And then we see verse number 6 parallels with verses 10 through 12. Because those who hunger for God are willing to pay the price of standing for Him. They want God more than they want comfort. And so these concepts parallel each other and they build on each other. In other words, we can put it this way. The first four Beatitudes deal with your relationship with God. The last four deal with... With your relationship with others. And this is what we're going to see as we study this passage of scripture. And understand this. A right relationship with God will always result in a right relationship with your fellow men. This is what Jesus taught in the great commandment. In Matthew chapter 22 verse number 37. Uh, Jesus told us what the great commandment was. He said the first commandment is this. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. And the second is likened to it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as what? Thyself. Thyself. These two two chief of commands are parallel to each other because when you love God as you should, what will be the natural consequence is that you will love your fellow man as you should. And so only when your relationship with God is where it ought to be can your relationship with others be where it ought to be. And in 1 John chapter number 4 and verse number 20, you'll see this in your notes. This is what the Bible tells us. It says, if a man say, I love God, and he hates his brother, he is a liar. For he that loves not his brother whom he has, whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. And a very convicting thought the scripture is giving to us here. This is precisely where we struggle. Are you listening? We don't struggle with saying, I don't love God. No, we say that. But where the rubber meets the road is when it comes to how we treat our neighbor. And I'm not just talking about the person living next door to you. 
who, mind you, many of you have never even met your neighbors. But I'll set that aside. Our neighbors aren't just the people who live next door to us. They are the people with whom we interact on a day-to-day -day basis. And as Americans, our culture drives us to think that the most neighborly thing that we can do is let people have their space. We build houses, and one of the first things we want to do is build walls around our property, fences around our property to keep the neighbors out, okay? And uh, in other words, we could put it this way, in American culture, um, the way that we think we can most respectfully treat our neighbors is by passing them by. It's an old American proverb that says, good fences make good neighbors. In Switzerland, the parallel proverb that they have is love your neighbor, but don't pull down the hedge. And I think that there's some truth to how we relate to each other even in American society today. Our culture tells us that the way we love our neighbor is by passing them by, and yet how contrary that is to what Jesus taught us. Now later in the Gospels, Jesus gives us the parable of the Good Samaritan. There were two men who were outwardly religious, who outwardly you would think they would be the neighborly ones. But when they saw the man in distress, Jesus tells us that both of them passed him by. But there was a Samaritan who did the opposite. He did not pass by his neighbor. He went to him and helped him in his time of need. And then Jesus asked the question at the end of that parable, who was the better neighbor? And the, the rhetorical question obviously is answered in our minds. We know who the better neighbor was in that story there. And this is what our lives should look like, too, when we are truly disciples of Christ, when we are truly right with God. Martin Luther said, God does not need our good works, but our neighbors do. How can we possibly benefit God, give him anything he doesn't need? We can't, but he asked us to use our efforts to benefit our neighbor. And it's so hard it's so hard to measure what your love for God is. It's easy to say, I love God, but it's hard to measure that. But if your love for God is measured by how you love your neighbor, then what does that say about your love for God? This is the essence of what we're going to be looking at as we study the remainder of the Beatitudes here. These are outward manifest manifestations of the first four inward realities that we studied last week. And so I'll say this, and listen to me very carefully. If you struggle with these last four Beatitudes we'll study now, the first thing you need to do is go back to the first four. Get your heart and your relationship with the Lord where it ought to be because these last four are the result of the first four. Does that make sense to you? And so we, we don't want to get things backwards here, and yet these truths are important for us to understand. And so the blessed life starts with a sincere relationship with God, and then it continues with your relationship towards your fellow man. And so with that being said, I want us to look at the final four um, uh, ways Jesus taught you you can have a truly blessed or happy life. And let's note number five down in our notes here. Number five, the fifth beatitude, blessed are the pitiful. The pitiful. Well, that sounds contradictory, doesn't it? Well, let's read it again. Verse number seven. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. 
So the man who lives a truly blessed or happy life is a man who learns to be, by the working of the Holy Spirit of God, merciful. A merciful man. That word merciful, aliamon in the Greek, it means to be charitable or to show pity to others. Uh, perhaps the most common definition of mercy today is that it is not giving someone something they deserve. To not give someone something that they deserve. And the world looks at mercy as a sign of weakness in a person. In a person. Justice is what the world demands of people. Um, and uh, we have an outcry in our culture today for social justice. And justice has always been the demand of the world. And yet when Jesus walked this earth, he who is God Almighty, the judge of the universe, he did not come to judge the world. In fact, in Matthew chapter number 9, and I believe in verse number 13, Jesus said, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus said, I didn't come to judge you. I came to save you. I didn't came come for justice upon you. I came to show you mercy and to save you. Justice is the demand of the law. Mercy is the gift of the gospel. And thank God for it. Because if it were not for his mercies, you and I would be consumed every single day by the justice of God. And we deserve it. Because of our wickedness and sinfulness. And so Jesus did not come to give us what we deserve, but he came to give us what we don't deserve. And we could never earn. And that is the beautiful blending of mercy and grace. Jesus said in John chapter 3, For the Son of Man has come, uh, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And I thank the Lord Jesus that that is why he came. And so we who are sinners have been incredible recipients of this great mercy of God and the teaching of Jesus Christ that he's trying to communicate to us here is as we have therefore received such rich mercy from Jesus, now we are to show that same token of mercy to the people that are in our lives. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. In Luke chapter 6, verse 36, Jesus puts it this way. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also in heaven also is merciful. We're going to show mercy because we know what it is to need mercy. I think John Phillips put it the best. He said this. He who shows no mercy destroys the bridge over which he himself must pass. And how often we're guilty of that. Jesus told the parable in Matthew chapter 18 about a man who was in incredible debt to his Lord, to his, to his employer. And with this incredible debt, he could not possibly ever pay the debt back. And when, he, when his Lord confronted him about it, he fell on his knees and pleaded for mercy. And presently, the Lord forgave him the entire debt and let him go free. And that man left that exchange of mercy and he went home and he found another man that owed him a minuscule amount of money. And he would not forgive him. He took him to task. In fact, he turned him into the authorities and got him put in prison because he wouldn't pay back his $10 debt. The Bible says that when the Lord who had shown him such great mercy found out that he would not in turn show mercy to the person who owed him the smallest of debts. But he took him to task for it. The fact of the matter is. 
We have that same struggle in our lives more often than we would like to admit. We struggle with showing mercy to other people. Listen to me on this. When you convince yourself that you are more deserving of mercy than someone else, you believe a lie that robs you of the mercy you desperately need yourself. Right? Jonah is a great example of this. Jonah is called to go to Nineveh to preach the gospel to the Assyrians. But he thinks the Assyrians don't deserve mercy. He thinks the Assyrians deserve justice. And so he refuses to go. Until eventually, where does he find himself? On the belly of a whale, right? And as he prays from the belly of a whale, he betrays his own thoughts. In Jonah chapter 2, in verse number, verse number 8, when he says, They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. In other words, when you believe the lie that, well, I deserve mercy from God, but they don't. I didn't do what they did. Then you are forsaking your own source of mercy. See, when you understand how much mercy you've been given, the natural result of that, spiritually speaking, is for you to then show mercy to other people. But he who has been forgiven of little will be less inclined to forgive other people Jesus taught in another passage of Scripture. And so this matter of mercy is something that we all tend to struggle with. But the wonderful blessing that's described here for those who are merciful is that the Bible says they shall obtain mercy. And why I call this the mercy cycle. As you understand how much mercy you have received from God, you surrender to the Lord, and you're willing then to show that same token of mercy to the other people that are in your life. Uh, Romans 12.1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And as the Lord has forgiven us, we are to forgive others. As the Lord has shown mercy to us, we are to show mercy uh, mercy to others as well. As the scripture says in Psalm 18.25, with the merciful that will show thyself merciful. Blessed are the pitiful. Do you show mercy? We struggle with this. This is the key to living a truly blessed life. Now let's look at number six. Blessed are the pure. The pure. Verse number eight, the Bible says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? Boy, it is time change Sunday, Brother East. <laughs> I'm going to start jumping around here in a minute. Wake you all up, okay? They shall see God, the pure in heart. The pure. The centerpiece of the truly blessed life is described for us in these words right here. The person who is pure in heart, the Bible says, is a person who can live in the presence of God. Now, the heart is the Greek word cardion, and it speaks of the center, the control center of your mind, will, and emotions here. And God knows that it is from your heart that everything springs forth in your life. Uh, Proverbs 4, verse 22, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Our central problem as men is that we are not pure of heart. As, as sin-cursed people, we do not have pure hearts. In fact, Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the Bible says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? 
And we like to think that we are good-hearted people, well-intentioned people, but we would be thinking incorrectly. Right? The, the reality that Scripture tells us is that we are messed up, morally depraved people. That's who we are without God. And we don't, we don't naturally, uh, we aren't naturally pure in heart. So the question is, how can one become pure in heart? Well, if you look in your Bible there, the word pure is translated from the Greek word katharos. And uh, that word uh, katharos is the root word from which we get our English word catharsis today. And, and it speaks of being made pure uh, by cleansing from filth. In uh, modern psychology, catharsis is the process of being cleansed of emotional trauma uh, from, from uh, bitterness or, or fear or anger. Uh, that's, what, that's what psychology tells us about. But this isn't psychological catharsis. This is spiritual catharsis. This is something that can only happen spiritually in your heart. And you're not the one that can cleanse yourself from your impurity. From your sinfulness. Listen to me very closely here. Spiritually, the only way you can have your heart made pure is when you are cleansed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ for your sins. First John chapter 1 and verse 7 tells us that it is the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all of our sin. And so listen, if you are trying to make yourself pure by cleaning up the outside, well, I dress right and I appear to live a very pure life. You're missing. You'll never, you'll never be made pure just because you look like it to everybody else. Jesus is not talking about outward purity. He is talking about an inward purity. And this inward purity can only ever be affected by a connection of faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior to purify you from your sins. We sing it all the time. What can wash away my sin, church? What is it? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's it. And that's what the Bible teaches us as well. Jesus, later in the Gospel of Matthew here in chapter 5, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you'll in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. In other words, he says, unless you become more spiritual than the most spiritual people that are living on earth, you'll never get there. And so none of us have any hope. If we try to purify ourselves, the only way we can be made pure of heart is when we have uh, been made pure through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You cannot be made pure by your works. You can only be made pure by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for your sins. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy has he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit which were shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And when you have been made pure of heart through faith in Jesus Christ, here's the assurance. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall what? See God. They shall see God. When your heart has been purified by faith in Jesus, you can see God in a way that you have never seen him before. Uh, I like how one person put it. He said, when the heart is pure, the vision is clear. The vision is clear. And uh, uh, it's such a wonderful application for us when we've been made of pure of heart. If you think about it, the man who is not pure of heart does not want to see God. If you are not pure of heart, you're like Adam in the Garden of Eden. After Adam sinned, did he run to God? He ran from the presence of the Lord. Sin makes you want to hide from God, not come to God. 
Sin makes you ashamed, but when your heart has been made pure through cleansing, through the blood of Jesus Christ, that is when you'll see God at work in your life. That is when you'll desire fellowship, communion with the Lord. And boy, this truth is so powerful. It can have such great impact in our lives here today. And I thank God that as a blood-bought, born-again believer, now I know I have been made pure, not because I always am pure, by my own actions, but because of my faith in what Jesus Christ has done for me. And Hebrews chapter 4 makes very clear that now we can come boldly to the throne of grace. Not because of our own effort, because of what Jesus has done to give us access to God. It's such a beautiful thing. And so we see the, fourth, uh, the uh, sixth key here to living a truly happy life is blessed are the pure, the pure in heart. Let's look at number seven. Number seven, blessed are the peacemakers. The peacemakers. Verse number nine. This is what the Bible tells us. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called, what church? The children of God. Now, the only way you can have peace with God is if you have faith in Jesus Christ. There is no peace, says my God, to the wicked. And if you are living in sin, uh, you'll have no peace in your heart so long as you do. But you can be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. And when you are declared righteous by faith in Christ, the Bible says you can have peace with God. That's what brings you peace with God is faith in Jesus Christ. Peace is foreign to this world. Uh, this world is always at war. They're always bickering and fighting and warring with one, with one another, uh, which is why one historian said, uh, he described peace, and he said, peace is that glorious moment in history when everyone stops to reload. It's <laughs> a little bit of truth for how this world operates. Peace is foreign to this world, but Jesus says it's to be the staple of his children. It's to be the staple of his children. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. The word peacemaker speaks of one who loves to make peace. Now, here's the key. You write this down. Peace is not found in the absence of conflict, but it is found in a relationship with God. That's where true peace is found. When Jesus came, they said he's the prince of peace. When he came, the angels pronounced peace on earth, goodwill for men. Because when you have a relationship with Christ, that is what brings true peace into your life. And so a peacemaker then seeks first to reconcile people to God and then with each other. If you get those backwards, you'll have no true or sustained peace. Most people, when they think of a peacemaker, what they're thinking of is nothing more than a pacifist. Someone who's just trying to pacify the situation. And I'm often guilty of this, so I'm preaching to the choir. All right? But listen to me. A pacifist. Being a peacemaker doesn't just mean telling people, can we all just get along? Being a peacemaker biblically is rather, can we all just get on board with what God says? And a person who truly wants to make peace will help people, help people uh, uh, with uh, restoring their relationship with God and then restoring their relationship with one another. That's what a true peacemaker looks like. James 3.17 says, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure and then peaceable. You start with the purity. You start with confronting the truth. And then you get to the, the peacemaking process. One person said the goal of the peacemaker is to get people right with God and then they will quickly get right with one another. Here's a wonderful assurance to those who are peacemakers. 
they will be called the children of God. And so consider this with me. For so many Christians, they are not known as peacemakers. They are known as pot stirrers. And if, if you are known for causing drama and division, you are either not a Christian or you are a disobedient Christian. Amen, preacher. That's good preaching. <laughs> Proverbs 13 and verse 10 says, only by pride comes contention. Some of you, you thrive on drama. You love it. And you're wrong. And in Christian love, I'm telling you, you are dead dog wrong. There is something not right in your relationship with the Lord. If that's where you want to live at. Because that is not the staple of a child of God. But blessed, happy, truly satisfied are the peacemakers. For they shall be called the children of God. Do you love peace? Do you love to make peace between people? Or are you that person everybody else that can come to and know that you're going to take their side? Encourage them to not make peace. I think we need some help in this area, don't we? Let's look at the last one. We'll be done. Blessed are the persecuted. We've already read the scripture, but I'll read it one more time. Verse 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. Now to me, this last beatitude is the most unlikely of them all. You want to know how you can be really happy? Get harassed. Get beat up. Have people tell lies about you. You'll be real happy when that happens. That did not make sense at all. That's what Jesus is saying. But it follows that if you truly love God more than anyone else, you have a hunger and thirst for God. It follows that then you would be willing to go to any length necessary for God. If He's the most important thing in your life, you will not compromise your stand for Him or your relationship with Him for anything else, even if it means your life. And so it follows that as you have a true hunger for God, you are willing to go through anything for God Nathan Hale, an American patriot who loved his country during the controversy, uh, during the Revolutionary War, before he was hung and put to death for his patriotism for our country by the British, he said, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. That was for his country. You know, the apostles of Jesus, after they were persecuted one time, the Bible says that they left rejoicing. Because they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus Christ. Counted worthy. You see, for those of us who sincerely love the Lord, persecution is a privilege and a responsibility. The Bible tells us, yea, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And there's all different kinds of persecution. I'll not take time to, to deliberate this here because we're out of time here. But there are all different kinds of persecutions. 
Uh, it's not just being put to death for your faith, but it's being harassed. It's being lied about. It's being mocked and put down. All of these things are involved in what persecution is. And all of us, to some degree, as we live for the Lord, will face some measure of persecution. Some of you face persecution from your own family as you're trying to live for the Lord. Some of you face persecution at your workplaces. Some of you face it in other avenues, but it is a common thing that the people of God will go through as they strive to live as faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. And here is the blessing described for the persecuted. The Bible tells us in verse number 12, it says, Rejoice and be exceeding glad. I had fun studying this this week. Because the word rejoice means to be overjoyed. And the phrase exceeding glad, it literally carries the connotation of skipping around and jumping for joy. And so if you can imagine in your mind, someone harasses you. Woo! Thank God! Can you imagine that? I was watching, a, I was watching Indiana basketball yesterday. It wasn't actually very good. Because um, they lost. But anyways... Well, I was standing there and I was thinking about that because they'd score a basket and I'd be like, yeah! And in my mind, that's what the Bible's talking about. And it, it brings me back to my father. When I was growing up, my dad was, was really growing in his relationship with the Lord. And he would often, we'd often, we'd work together in the garage. If dad was home, whether he was outside, whether he was in the garage, I was with him. All right? And we just talked. I remember many times my dad in those conversations, and I was just a young boy, he'd tell me, well, son... They really give me a hard time at work right now. And I think, oh, man, I feel sorry for my dad. But then my dad would carry on the conversation and say, boy, I'm happy. They're racking up points for me in heaven, son. <laughs> and I remember consciously thinking as a kid, what is wrong with you? <laughs> but I learned this from my own father when I was growing up. And he understood the principle that Jesus is saying here. Boy, if you're persecuted for Christ's sake, persecuted for your faith in the Lord, that's something that you can be glad about. Why? Well, he tells us, verse 12, he says, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. Why can you be glad when you face persecution? First off, because the rewards are great. They're not temporal rewards. They're eternal rewards. Like my dad used to say, they're racking up points for me in heaven. So, And that's a, you can picture that in your mind. Someone once said about living for Jesus, uh, they, they described the job description by saying, the job doesn't pay well, but the benefits are out of this world. <laughs> and it's true. Why, when you're persecuted, can you be happy? Because the reward is great, and because the company is good. For so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. When you stand in the place of being persecuted, you're standing shoulder to shoulder with men like Moses. With people like Jesus Christ himself. And friend, that's the company I want to be identified with. With those courageous souls who have stood for the Lord throughout the ages. Not with the cowards. I want to be with the courageous ones. And Jesus said, you're joining a good club when you face seasons of persecution. And yes... As you understand what Jesus is talking about here, we learn some principles that tell us how to live a truly happy life. And it goes totally against the grain of what this world would say. See, everything Jesus taught us here doesn't make sense from a secular perspective, but from a spiritual perspective, it should revolutionize our lives. 
And understand, as you put the first four Beatitudes together with the last four Beatitudes, as you get your relationship with the Lord, where He calls you to be with it, the natural, pro uh, the natural result of that is that you will start treating other people the way that He calls you to. As you have received mercy, you will show mercy. As you understand your own sinfulness, you'll become pure of heart and begin to see God at work in your life. And, uh, and so on and so forth. And so as we've studied these truths this morning, where are you lacking? Now, I'll say this before we close. If you are here this morning and you do not have a fulfilled life, it very well may be because you do not have Christ. And you will never find fulfillment in anything else in life until you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if you have never made the decision to trust Jesus as your Savior, the Bible says today is the day for you to do so. For those of us that have trusted Christ as our Savior, the Lord's still working on us, isn't he? And as God has spoken to your heart, I pray that you'd be willing to respond in making decisions during this invitation to commit those areas of struggle over to the Lord and let him change your heart.